Welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. Hey, and this is Ryan Parker. Tony, we're back. Ryan, where have you been for the last year? We we, we haven't recorded. Where have you for a been all year. my life? I'm guessing we haven't recorded for a full year because you didn't watch any TV in the last year. How did you know that? Is that, is that accurate? How did you? <laughs> I've watched more TV than is healthy for any human being. I think the AMA probably has guidelines prohibiting this much television consumption. Hey, pandemic will not stop us. I don't know what stopped us before, but we're not going to let this pandemic. A pandemic actually restarted us. A pandemic. You can. Okay. All of you listener out there, uh, you can thank the pandemic for the return of the killer serials podcast. How about that? Hey, do we have a flow chart of the last month? to see um, how many new podcasts have been created. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know, uh, but I'm so This is what so the world needs I'm... now is another no. podcast. We, we, can, we can say that we were podcasting long before, before COVID-19. We, we took a hiatus, okay? It was, it was well-deserved. I mean, we were tired. We needed a sabbatical. It was a very, it was a, it was a theologically justifiable break from podcasting. And yes. uh, of course you and I have been, we've been uh, in, in constant communication over the last year about all sorts of different fun things and um, have maintained our friendship, even though we haven't been recording our conversations, we've still been talking about a lot of shows and yeah, a lot of good, just a lot of good TV last year, a lot of good films. Yeah. 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 It seemed like a great opportunity to, kickstart it because you have an idea that we will reveal at the end of this episode of where we're going to take this podcast that's super exciting i think yeah i think i think it's gonna you know there's a lot it's a it's a tease i think there's a lot um going on obviously in the world but there's also a lot of us have a lot of time now on our hands and i think you and i were talking about ways to be productive during this time and this, you know, kind of resurrecting this podcast, potentially being part of that. And, um, but also getting to, because we're kind of a TV podcast, getting to catch up on some shows that we missed or that we have just not taken the time to watch. And, and now trying to work through some of that, like a kind of like a stack of unread books. So yeah, we'll talk more about that later, but Tony, why don't you tell us what We've got this kind of one-off episode here. Um, yeah. In the past, we devoted, you know, several episodes to series that are, that are quite frankly demand that, right? They're many episodes, but what are we what are we talking about today? Well, uh, just to remind people, if anybody's new to our podcast, uh, we're a couple guys with PhDs in theology who love television and storytelling, and we watch TV series 
and then discuss the, I guess you'd say, the spiritual dimensions of those series, the theological dimensions, even maybe kind of the, the existential questions, even philosophical questions that those series are asking, and we discuss them, uh, bringing to bear, you know, what we know and what we've learned um, in our studies, but also just our experiences of life. And there are some really you know, really talented storytellers out there who are taking seriously the spiritual dimensions of life. That's what this podcast is about, uh, discovering, dissecting those. And the TV show that we're tackling today is couldn't be more right down the center of the plate for us. And it's extraordinarily popular. I mean, last night when I watched the last two episodes... Uh, it said it was the number seven show on Netflix yesterday. Well, let's so, tell you know, them, it's tell in the, in the top ten of Netflix means millions of people are watching it. Yeah. Well, they probably know it from the title of the podcast episode, but it's, <laughs> the show is unorthodox. It is a it is it's a four part TV miniseries based on a memoir of a woman who left the uh, Hasidic Orthodox community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. And that book is also called Unorthodox uh, by Deborah Feldman. Came out in uh, 2012. The subtitle is The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots. So uh, Netflix has done an interesting thing with this series. There's also an accompanying, I think, 30 minute long making of documentary. uh, And they're fairly quick to uh, clarify that it's it's inspired by that book it's it's kind of based on that book and her leaving the hasidic jewish community um is is fairly accurate but the life that she moves into and and kind of where she goes and and all of that is there's some creative license there that's right i think that one of the things you know that i found so interesting about that making of doc which in Netflix's own way, you know, cues up right after you finish the last episode, it just goes right into that doc. Um, is that, like you say, the the New York parts of the miniseries are based on the memoir and are accurate to the memoir. Um, the Berlin part, like where she flees, where she goes to when she flees, the whole thing about the Berlin part, her mom and, you know, um, uh, auditioning to get into a music conservatory, that part was added to increase the drama of the show. Um, so anyway, it, it's fascinating. The entire thing really was filmed in Berlin, except for some of the external shots were filmed in New York. But uh, yeah. they did seem to get some. some uh, I, I just thought about this, man. As, okay, you and I have pitched some you know, pitch some TV stuff before, and we've been involved in some different TV stuff just on the, on the outskirts of it or margins of, a, of TV programs. But can you imagine that people be like, okay, hey, hey, we would like to pitch uh, a story to Netflix and 70% of the dialogue is going to be in Yiddish with subtitles. <laughs> they were like, yeah. okay, uh, I don't know. Yeah. No, yeah. but it, it's crazy. It worked. You know, it works. It absolutely. And yeah, I think, you know, for us, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, 
and we're we're assuming and hoping that people have already engaged the content that we're talking about. So if you haven't, you may want to press pause on this and go spend three and a half hours watching some amazing storytelling and 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 television, and then come back because we're gonna spoil the whole thing for you. Um, and I think you know one of the yeah. things to just kind of get out of the way quickly, and then I think it will help us as we talk about this kind of give some structure to our conversation is the series is quite sharp in the way that it tells this young woman's story and that it moves from the present, which is uh, her fleeing to Berlin and trying to establish a life there making new friends. Um, And then is cutting back to her life uh, as she moved into married into that, or kind of lived into that community. And it goes back and forth throughout the series but I think it'll help us as we talk about it to kind of just talk about the story from kind of past to present instead of kind of bouncing around. But it's it's yeah. fairly straightforward story, right, of a young woman who leaves this very conservative, very insular community um, to, to find a way, right, to kind of make her own way. But the way it tells that story, I think, is quite sophisticated and the cues or the moments that and the present that kind of spark her memory to the past uh, in that community and kind of building up to her decision to, to leave. You know, in, in some ways, it's not a unique story. It's a story of um, an adolescent, a late adolescent. She's 19 at the time she flees, leaving a, you know, a very um, rigorous, uh, very conservative, very domineering, patriarchal, uh, family situation, you know, it's it's not unlike the the runaway bestseller, Uneducated, which is about a woman leaving um, a, a a conservative national, you know, U.S. nationalistic offshoot Mormon family, um, and trying to you know, figure out who she is in the world. I read that novel and it's, it's a very similar story. And we could go on and on with the number of stories that are like that. I mean, there are stories of, of people fleeing Amish um, conservative groups and fleeing Muslim conservative groups, etc. Yeah. Similar, uh, so similar what, story, what, what, but a unique, a unique setting, right? A unique something. Yeah. I mean, and so that, that's one of the things that's right. That's one of the things I think is so interesting is that, um, and I, I wanted to, you know, you've already seen this, but um, I, I asked my buddy who's a rabbi in uh, Rio de Janeiro uh, if he's watched it. And he wrote me back. He said, yes, we watched it and cringed. These are among the most ultra Orthodox Jews. He said the show is important for its use of Yiddish, the Eastern European polyglot that they speak. They live in a dynastic 18th century world. Not all Hasidic communities are this densely cut off. Um, He says the Lubavitch Hasidic community in the Twin Cities, where I live, Minneapolis, St. Paul, they're certainly not this removed. They use cell phones. They do business in the outside world, etc. So he has told me, you know, he's saying they're completely opposed to interfaith dialogue. They're the most fringy of the fringe. Um, The the Satmar... Which is interesting. Well, I just want to say that, I mean, okay, so here's something that you and I have even run into in our other work, you know, is that when we've 
pitch some other TV projects, whether, and this wasn't even on the table at the time, but like, I remember being told by somebody on a project you and I were working on, look, the A&E network has had a ton of success with the going clear show about Scientology. If you're going to do a show about Christians, what they're going to want is you to find the most fringy Christians, the people who like handle snakes and drink poison in the hollows of West Virginia or something like that. Like that, that's what makes good TV. So I'm just saying all that, like there is something, even my much more mainstream reform liberal rabbi friend, he's like, no, those people don't represent Judaism, but it is for those of us who aren't Jews to see that, um, what, what would you say that extreme of a version or that concentrated of a version of Judaism, th- there is something to it that's so compelling, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, the danger of kind of othering that uh, those types of uh, faith expressions, right? More conservative. You know, a lot of times when you look at like on the Christian side, right? When you're talking about snake handling, very insular communities, there's often accusations of poverty porn. Um, or whatever, but I, I kind of felt like uh, recognizing and probably knowing, you know, a bit more about diverse faith expressions, that this was obviously just one community. I never got the sense, um, and it felt like the creators um, were trying to say that this was representative of all Judaism, or that there was a, a, a trying to be, uh, create an expose of an abusive community, it felt very straightforward that it's, this is a life that people choose or are born into. Um, for many, it gives them meaning or helps them make meaning of their life. It gives them structure and community. Uh, this happens to be the way they express their faith. You know, I, I felt like as somebody who tries to be attuned to sensitive portrayals of faith communities, which in pop culture doesn't often happen um, for, for right or wrong, I felt like this was a fairly, at least from an outsider's perspective, a fairly even-handed representation of that community, albeit one that is perhaps more extreme in their conservatism, if I can say that. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I'm not saying that it's, that it's not handled with care. I really think it is. And you tell, again, when, when you watch that making of doc at the end, uh, it, you see that you see the filmmakers um, caring so much about getting everything just right, whether it's the Yiddish, the costuming um, portraying like the wedding that they shot over two days. They really wanted to get the wedding exactly right. What, what a wedding would be like on inside. Um, But you know, it's, um, it's like anything. It's like uh, if, if you and I were, if you and I were confronted by somebody who's not a Christian and they're like those, I mean, like, can you believe those Amish with their, they're driving around in their buggies and they don't let women speak and they make those girls wear their head coverings all the time. You're like, Hey, 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 Whoa, that's, they don't represent Christianity. I'm just saying it doesn't surprise me that a reform Jewish rabbi would say that's not representative of Judaism. That's, and when, uh, um, yeah, when a version like or or you take I, I loved the show Big Love, but you would talk to Mormons, yes. they're like nobody, you yes. know, there's people are not um buying 
houses next door to each other for the sister wives in Salt Lake City. Like that's not happening. Um, You know, but it made for good TV. It made for better TV than a Mormon family that rejected um, uh, polygamy, you know. So that's, I just want to acknowledge that. I wonder if you can. Yeah, of course, and I'm I'm glad you did because I, I I'm we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, of how opportunities like this, or stories like this, we could be quick to say, oh, look at that oppressive lifestyle or whatever, um, but it can also cause us to kind of take stock of our own traditions, right, or where where we see people um, who with whom we disagree but who share a, a, a common narrative, right. Um, and it gets, it's increasingly harder and harder to, um, ignore the, the kind of dangerous elements in our own Christian faith. The pandemic is continuing to shed light on people like that, right? Be it Franklin Graham or conservative megachurch pastors who are, are, are just bound and determined to gather. Yeah. The other thing my rabbi buddy emailed to me was, you know, uh, um, that these ultra orthodox Jewish communities in Israel are responsible for like 38% of the um, COVID-19 cases in Israel are coming from those Hasidic communities, those very tightly knit communities. Uh, they do. I had a, I had a thought their, last night. I was, yeah. We're, we're recording this on, what is it? Monday, April 6th. And uh, I had seen a, a post on Twitter yesterday and a news item about, um, you know, kind of conservative evangelicals who are still going to church and gathering. Mm-hmm. And just in speaking of our own tradition, you know, I, I thought at, at what point does faith become idolatry? Um, at what point does uh, adhering to a practice, be it gathering for worship or whatever, uh, that is potentially putting countless people in danger that to me that ceases to become faith. I think it becomes something else. I I don't want to be judgmental, but I mean, I I think when you look at a character like Moisha, who is um, one of the main characters, uh, his purchasing of that gun in an effort to rein Esty back into the community, I think we cross the line from faith into something else. I don't know if that, if you kind of share that question, but um, it's just something that I thought about in light of what's going on in the real world. When I watch stuff like this, it does, you know, you, you do, one of the things you want to scream at the characters is, are you really thinking about this or are you just going through the motions because this is all you know? And of course, the the beauty of Esty's breakaway is that she is seeing it for what it is. She says, I feel different. And, and she's looking at the community and it, it, it it's not, a it's, it, it really isn't about, she doesn't lose her faith in God, which is the case in some of these, um, in some of these narratives of somebody leaving a conservative community. Um, it has more to do, you know, that question isn't really even broached about whether she, um, is, is losing her faith. It's really about she feels that she doesn't fit into the community and the community is has only one role for her and that is to be the mother of many children because as we see in one of the flashbacks her you know 
the role of, of every member of that community is to repopulate the six million Jews who were killed by the Nazis. And, and that's all-consuming to them, all-consuming, because they, that's where this community came from. Uh, they're the survivors of a group of Jews in Hungary who were absolutely ravaged by the Holocaust. Uh, a select few of them fled and landed in New York, and this is now their home. They even kind of, at one point, and this is something I wanted to ask my rabbi about, is uh, at one point they even poo-poo Jews who live in Israel as just Zionists. And they're not, they're not really even about that. New York is definitely their home. They've made Brooklyn their home. But they are so insulated. They, they do business with one another. They eat every meal with one another. I, I turned to my wife at one point while we were watching the fourth episode yesterday and said, can you imagine living your entire life, every meal, every holiday, every business transaction with one of the same 50 or 100 or 150 people? I mean, it would just seem mad. Hey, some some of us have been doing that for three weeks during this pandemic and are about to jump off a bridge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, another <laughs> thing that's been interesting, Ryan, is watching the show with a nineteen-year-old woman, my my daughter, the same age. Oh, as yeah. Esty. How was that? Yeah, how was that? Well, I mean, what was her take like, on Lily the show? Has, my daughter has. She loves it. I mean, she finds it very compelling and fascinating, and. But, you know, her life couldn't be more different. This is another thing that's that's really something is, you know, is is that these um, these Hasidic Jews live in New York City. It's not like they don't see the real world that's around them. It's different, somewhat different from an Amish Christian who lives on a farm in Ohio, you know, or in um, in Pennsylvania. And they maybe don't have so much interaction with modern people, but these, um, this community in New York, man, they're, they're surrounded by it. They know every, they know everybody's watching YouTube and checking their smartphones and stuff like that. So there's some cute little clever kind of moments in the show where that, um, like Yankee, this, this character you mentioned, he, he's with this guy, Moisha, who's a little more worldly than he, and he, he tries to like shout into his, uh, Moisha's smartphone, um, find my wife. Where's my wife? <laughs> like, yeah. uh, he doesn't even really understand how it works, you know? And then, yeah. uh, at another point, Esty sits down at a computer to try to search for something and she's never used a search engine before. She doesn't even know, you know, what to type into the search engine bar. Yeah, and and she she approaches it almost like it's it's divine, right? That it has this kind of omniscient uh, force yeah. at her fingertips. You know, um, I was going to ask you about because you mentioned this uh, before we started recording that you are also watching the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, it's yeah. a show that my wife and I watched the first season, but haven't returned to. Um, and you felt that that was an interesting companion series to this, just because of its uh, the way the way it represents Jewish communities. I know they're obviously different, but uh, did you want to say something about that? And maybe that interpretive process that the that the showrunners and writers take, and how that's different. Well, what I what what I want to say about I mean, put, putting those two shows in contrast, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Unorthodox 
is what's fascinating about those two shows is they both uh, are very Jewish. And they're both versions of Judaism that are totally and completely foreign to me. So it's like mid-20th century New York City, Upper West Side Judaism, where, um, you know, uh, Midge Maisel and her mom have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of outfits. They have an entire bedroom in their house filled with wardrobes full of dresses. You know, they they live in an extraordinarily expensive apartment. They... Um, they have very high, high class tastes. Uh, they're very what you would call worldly. They're a, about as Western as you could be. And then you've got unorthodox, also about Jews who live in New York, and they are trying to retreat from or withdraw from society. Both seem super foreign to me. I mean, part of the allure of both shows is how foreign they are. Uh, they are. It, it's not unlike, you know, watching a show about like a science fiction show set on another planet or something like that. It's fascinating because it's not something I know. It's not the way that that I live. And so anyway, I just think those two shows, it's it's really something to think about them and think those two shows are portraying people who actually share the same religion and couldn't be more different. Yeah, it it would almost be like uh, doing, you know, there's a film called Them That Follow, which is about a, a snake handling community in the Appalachian Mountains, and then like a show about uh, Joel Osteen and his community in Houston, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I you know, you could, yeah, you could do a similar show, of course, about the, the, the wide variety of Christians, you know, um, but I, it, it's just, it, it's interesting that these two shows are quite popular right now. And they, they both portray the same pe- adherents of the same religion who are so extraordinarily different that I think that's kind of interesting. Here's one thing I, I thought about, and I wonder if you've got a thought about this is, um, you know, in in the, I, I keep coming back to the Amish world because it's kind of the Christian um, version of, of this kind of ultra orthodox Judaism. But the the Amish are famous for this rumspringa, which is about when a kid's maybe eighteen or nineteen, they are set free from the community for a year, and you can find documentaries on this, and it's pretty fascinating. I mean, they'll, some of these kids will um, they'll live. I, I I remember seeing a documentary a few years ago that followed these kids for a year who are leaving um going outside of the amish community and they were you know dropping acid they're all living together in a trailer um drinking a ton having sex doing all the things that are strictly forbidden in that in that community and it's like church sanctioned hedonism you can watch uh, that documentary online uh, there's there's a documentary called Devil's Playground which i think is quite good that is i think that must be the one i watched and that. and okay yeah. so you wonder you just got to ask um you ask yourself did like had an a purely hypothetical question but i'm wondering what you think about this esty um does does esty flee to berlin if she's given a year of room springer 
before she marries Yankee? Oh, that's a really good question. I want to say, I think she still would. And, and here's, and this is maybe an ignorant um, comparison or critique. And we, I want to come back to this later as well, but is there, or maybe this is just a question I have is in the Amish tradition and in, in those communities, is there so much emphasis on child bearing uh, for women? Because to me, this is one of the oh, major. I would think this is yes. one of the major things. Yes, you, but, you talk but about what this. they, yeah, I mean, what they don't have in the Amish community probably is that um, the the pressure of trying to recover from recover from the Holocaust and replenish the world. Yeah, with that, the that, that the history. Cost. Yeah, that, that so they history don't have trauma. that, but I I still think that you know those traditional gender roles that a girl's um, a girl's a telos in life is to grow up and be a mother and have many children. I think that's that they probably show that that's probably similar. That's probably similar in virtually any fundamentalist sect of any religion. Well, the, the way it functions in, uh, well, I'll come back to that in a minute. The, yeah. You see this notion a little bit in Moisho's character as well, right? It's clear that he has spent time apart from that community and that he has done things, made connections and relationships that are just kind of not really commented on in the course of the series. Like he knows, you know, mobsters in Germany, like he knows where to get a gun. He's like rigging um, a poker game. Uh, but it's, he's had that experience. He's a, he's a fascinating character because he is adheres to the faith um, kind of with a light touch, but he's someone that's a bit more worldly and the rabbi is not afraid to use him and use that for what he thinks is the good of the community and the good of Esti. Isn't that true? That's right. Like the, the rabbi is willing to lean on the worldly guy who's going to do stuff that, um, they're going to kind of t- look the other way when Moisha does stuff that is um, unsavory, right, on behalf of the community. Like, he's allowed to do stuff that nobody else in the community would be allowed to do. And he has this interesting and somewhat troubling um, uh, f- phrase that he says, a sentence that he says to Yankee when they're in Berlin, when they first get there, there's a different, what's he say, there's a different Torah on the road. Like when you leave, yep. when you leave the, our community, when you go to Berlin, it's a different Torah here. It's a different law when we're over here. Now there's still situational you know, ethics. Yes. It, it's situational <laughs> ethics. Exactly. They're still going yeah. in their hotel room. They're still doing their prayers, you know, and things like that. But he's also buying a gun and gambling and, um, and tries to set Yankee up with a prostitute. Um, so I, that's, I think that's a yeah, th- that's a good uh, point to to kind of segue in t- back to or to to go back to uh, what you were talking about earlier with Esty and and her experience of that community and how she feels like she doesn't fit in. You know, they there's a scene, um, at maybe in the second or third episode that you talked about where Moisha takes Yankee to um, a bar to 
a brothel and tries to to hook him up with a prostitute. And there's the the exchange that Yankee has with the 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 prostitute is that he, um, it's clear he doesn't know what he's doing um, in terms of physically relating to Esty, and he asks this woman what she would do and what she likes. And there's a scene in uh, previous to this where uh, they are not physically connecting after their marriage. They're having trouble consummating their marriage. Um, she is not getting pregnant. It is clear that sex for her is painful. They don't know their bodies, he, much less each other's bodies. And uh, that scene in which they, like he finishes, is one of the most painful scenes I've, you yeah. know, that I've watched in a lot of TV recently. It's, it's something that you kind of have to endure. Um, and you get the sense that 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 kind of conservatism conservatism is oppressive to her and him, right? Because he is ill-equipped to um, to be who he needs to be for her, um, and that pressure that is put on her, and and it is all on her, right? Like if she's not getting pregnant, it's her fault, right? If the if he is unhappy or unfulfilled, it's her fault. And to me, that's when you ask that question about her leaving, would she have left the community if she could have had a vacation from it? I still think she would because that pressure is still going to be there. Right. Yeah. And she, not every woman wants to be a mother. Um, not, uh, you know, her, her, she has no chance to figure out sex and sexuality play such a huge role in this series. And it's often through just kind of a, an unrealistic understanding of what that is, right? A completely unnatural um, understanding of, of how that functions in the human experience that is also kind of imprisoning her. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I thought one of the universal aspects of the show that you would have regardless of where you grew up is the overbearing mother-in-law. And, you know, part of the reason that she's struggling in the bedroom with her husband is she feels like her mother-in-law and her sisters-in-law and really the whole community is in the bedroom with them. And it, you know, because there's so much pressure to procreate and she's struggling with that. And of course the, you know, the irony down the road as the series progresses is that she does get pregnant. And when she flees, she has a, a child. And I, I will say, um, you know, maybe we can we can bring this thing on home now, because I think one of the things that's interesting and, and what I liked, I guess, about the the four part series is there are a lot of unanswered questions at the end. So Moisha at the end, you know, toward the end, gives Esty a gun and basically tells her to com either come home or commit suicide, which is a shocking um it's like a crazy shocking kind of fork in the road. Like the, those are her only two options. When she takes neither of those options, Moishe says something on his, I think the last time we see him basically like we will be, we will be back for that baby. That baby is part of our community, even if you're not. And of course that's yeah. exactly the story of SD with her mom, which we find out in the, in the fourth part too, is not that the mom gave up, Esty and left for Berlin, but that Esty was taken from the mom by the court because um, 
the the community lawyered up and they won custody yeah. of Esty. So Moisha kind of makes that promise as we see Esty walking through the um walking through Berlin toward her coffee shop at the very end. My wife said, um, I wonder if she's going to get an abortion. And of uh. course we don't know what happens to Esty or or the child, but I thought to myself, and what I said out loud was, no way. Like she maybe has left her community, but she has not. She she is no way has she gone that far that she would contemplate terminating her pregnancy. I cannot imagine that would be. Yeah, and there's a scene where she realizes that she is indeed pregnant. Right, the the doctor in Berlin gives it's fairly you know it's official. You you are pregnant. She didn't. She also had done the P test at home in New York and she says, we can discuss your options. And she says, what options there's what options as, as also, as if to also say there are no options, like there is only one path for me. Um, yeah. yeah and, and I think that's an interesting point too. That's that kind of po- points to the more universal aspects of the show is that use of fear, right? That, that Moisha, uh, it kind of characterizes his engagement with her that you're, it's going to be so bad. You're going to want to kill yourself. Right. Right. You can't make it in this world. How are you going to, and she's already found, which I think is quite lovely. Like the United colors of Benetton ad, right. Where she's found these friends at this conservatory who just immediately embrace her. And, you know, if you've ever traveled internationally, it's like every hostel you've ever been to. Um, and they're all hanging out and they're there for her and they, they kind of develop a quick. Yeah. Um, I found, you know, I've, to I, her. yeah, I've, I found that part totally believable that they yeah, would, absolutely. they would welcome absolutely. her in quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And the hospitality there. And I think that's a great, a great contrast with kind of fear-based and kind of the othering that a lot of conservative communities do, right. They, when they other, secular communities, right? Oh, you'll never fit in there. They won't love you or it's going to be awful or they're a threat to you or whatever. And you also see that with her mother, right? Her mother is in a, seems to be in a, a comfortable relationship. She's found work. Um, she's found a community, it seems like. And sh- she and that uh, those that group of students at the conservatory, I think represent hospitality, represent um, a certain grace for yeah for well, SD that is that is totally like you say it's totally believable and i think more akin to what you know what we should be doing as as people of faith than right than, than fear tactics yeah, so yeah and and the mom even has a really interesting line um when yankee uh confronts her in the nursing home and she makes some reference to God. And, you know, he says something about, what do you mean? What what do you mean you talk to God? And she says, like, you, you, you think you own God too? You think you yeah. own Esther, but you also think you own God? In, yeah. in other words, he, it was out, he couldn't, he assumed that if someone left that community, they also left the faith that they had no more faith in the Lord if they've left the, that singular, discrete community. 
and she kind of bursts his bubble on that. Like, no, no. Well, Tony, you've you've surely known that in your own life of of moving, uh, and I'm not saying you personally, but maybe you do. But you've also known people in your life who have left more conservative expressions of Christianity for more progressive ones, and the people that they've kind of moved away from are like, well, you might as well have left the faith altogether, right? That they're that maybe and it's some not have left the faith of, and some have. That's right. That's true. That's right. Yeah. And maybe it doesn't look like you're leaving an insular community and you're, you're fleeing to live somewhere else, but like this idea of you have left that community, at least in your mind and in your heart, like that you're not even a part of the same faith or the same tradition anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating show. I'm so glad that you encouraged me to watch it um, and that we use that as a reason to uh, reboot the Killer Serials podcast. Um, with that, why don't you let us in on where we go from here? Yeah, I, again, just want to, if uh, hopefully people have enjoyed this conversation and um always feel free to tweet at us ideas that you had about unorthodox and things that you took away from it or enjoyed about it. Maybe that we didn't get to. And yeah, like you said, it's a perfect fit, perfect opportunity to kickstart this conversation again. And as I mentioned before, during this time of self distancing and isolating, catching up on shows, we're going to turn our attention to rectify, which is a series that, that I started, but at, always meant to get around to finishing and never did. And Tony hasn't started it, uh, but it's one of those series in recent years that is kind of listed as best of the decade kind of shows. And when you hear people and I've heard people in LA who are writers and who are content creators talk about the show, it's like, this is the best show that you could be watching. You know, they're putting it up there with the wire and other series like that. And it started out on the Sundance well, it ran on Sundance, their Sundance channel, which is why probably a lot of you who are listening haven't seen it. Many of you may know about it, but it's now all the episodes are available streaming on Netflix. So we're going to kind of do a deep dive on this series. We're going to do a podcast episode for each episode. We're going to go uh, do an episode breakdown and we're going to release one a week, which might carry us to the end of the year. Um yeah, and 30, the there we got 30 pandemic range is the rate. Yeah. Yeah, the longer that we're isolated, the, the more time we have. So we would encourage you to watch it with us and maybe yeah, watch please. an episode a week. That's uh, right. And please, yeah, watch the first episode of Rectify this coming week. It's on, it's on Netflix, as Ryan said. And join us as we go episode by episode through all four seasons, all 30 episodes. I think it'll be really we're gonna fun. We're going to try to get some of the... We're going to try to get some of the cast. We're going to try to get a few of the writers to join us as well. Um, just through work, one of the writers on the series, Scott Teams, uh, through some of the work I'm doing on his upcoming film, have some chance to interact with him. And hopefully he'll join us for a conversation and kind of give us a you know behind the scenes look at creating that show. And yeah, um, I'm really excited about it. It's a show that I've won. I, I know it's one of those that, you know, like like a really good book, you know, like I should have read that by now so i'm glad that we're taking this opportunity to to take a deep dive into it because it's it's been on my list for too long yeah so and we may still jump in here or there um and do some special episodes on 
some other, um, you know, shows sure. that come along that have spiritual themes. But for the balance of the year, we're going to be going episode by episode through Rectify. We hope you join us. Um, and as Ryan said, yeah, reach out to us on social media, etc. We really appreciate you listening. We're glad to be back. And we will talk to you next week on the Killer Serials Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.